Well, turn with me. The first, uh, the first passage of Scripture we're going to be in this morning is Exodus chapter 33, verse 15. And uh, we are in week two of our series, Holy Ghost. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit. Last week we talked about the person of the Holy Spirit, and we answered the question, who is the Holy Spirit, and what is his role in the life of a believer? What does the Holy Spirit do? And today we're going to talk about the presence of the Holy Spirit and what it means. We're going to be answering the question, what does it mean to be the dwelling place of God's presence, of the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to be a temple of the Holy Spirit? I'm really excited about uh, this series because I believe that the Lord wants to unlock something in all of us. You know, the climax of the gospel story Oftentimes when we talk about the gospel story, we see Jesus' resurrection is that climactic moment where he has victory over death. And yes, that is a vital, important moment in, in our faith. But the climax of the gospel story is actually because of Christ's resurrection, he paid for our sins. Because of that, you now can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you have access to the presence of God at all times. It's, it's the climax of the gospel message. And when we tell people about the gospel message, it has to include that. Not only did God save you from something, he saved you from death and eternity separated from God, but he saved you into a future full of the Holy Spirit and full of the, uh, of the power of the Spirit that he's actually enabled you to become more and more like Jesus because you are now full of God's presence in your life. I want to tell you a story about my sister. When my sister was a senior in high school, she was at a track meet, and there were some students uh, throwing the discus. They were practicing the discus. Well, there was another one of her friends that was standing up close to, he was too close to the net that the discus was supposed to hit, and there was actually a hole in the net, and the student that was throwing the discus let go of it at the wrong time, and it came back and hit this student in the face and completely tore apart his face. Just hit him in the face. He drops down to his knees, and he's literally holding his face together. He had broken his jawbone. He'd lost all of his top teeth. He needed plastic surgery completely. He looked like a different student when he came back to school because he had so much plastic surgery. But he's on the floor, and he's just in, he, he's in, in pain. He's holding his face together. And my, he, there's blood dripping from between his fingers. And my sister is a ways off, and she sees the commotion. She sees students gathering around this kid, and she runs up to this kid who's on the ground bleeding, holding his face. And she puts her hand over his back and says, In the name of Jesus, I command all pain to leave him right now. And some students who were standing around looked at my sister and said, Breck, go. Get the, get the F out of here. And they started cussing at her. They're telling her to get away. And everybody's kind of getting angry that my sister is invoking the name of Jesus at a school track meet. Well, my sister says, okay. And she, she backs away. Well, the next day, she's on her way to Oklahoma to have an interview with the board at Oral Roberts University. And she's, at a, she's uh, in Texas in a, on, a, on a layover waiting for her next flight. And while she's waiting in Texas at the airport, this young man whose face was hit with the discus, uh, her, his dad called my sister while she was sitting in the airport. My sister notices it's an unknown number, so she picks up the phone and she says, hello. And he says, this is uh, Justin's dad. You prayed for him yesterday at the track meet. I just wanted you to know, you know, here's what happened. He broke his jaw. He lost all of his teeth. Doctors say 
that he's going to need to undergo a lot of plastic surgery and that he's going to be experiencing a lot of pain. That's what the doctors told us. But I wanted to call you and tell you, and Justin wanted me to tell you this, that from the moment you laid your hands on him, he hasn't experienced any pain in this entire process. That all the pain completely left his face, his body. And he hasn't experienced any pain. And my sister was like, wow, thank you for calling me, for telling me about this. And so my sister goes off, continues to Oral Roberts University. Ironically, they ask her in the interview, have you ever experienced a time where you felt like the Holy Spirit moved through you? And my sister got to say, well, actually, yesterday this happened. And she got to tell that story. She got accepted to Oral Roberts University. And uh, she gets back to school. And one of the students that had told her to, you know, F off to get out of here, uh, he, he meets my sister at the school. And uh, he's now got my sister's back. And and he because he, he knows, my, my sister said, you know, actually, there was another student who came up to her and started teasing her about what she did uh, in the moment praying for Justin. And she goes, you know, as a matter of fact, Justin's dad called me and told me that he hadn't experienced any pain from the moment I laid hands on him. Well, the student that was on the field that day that said, hey, get out of here, Breck, he started standing up for my sister. He goes, yeah, it's true. Justin said he hadn't experienced any pain. Yeah, Breck's, Breck's right. Like, and he's now got my sister's back. And my sister looks at this other kid and goes, you know, um, in fact, is there anything in your body that hurts right now? I believe the Holy Spirit wants to heal you right now, too. And he said, well, yeah, my wrist, my wrist actually has been really hurting me. Uh, I, I hurt my wrist. And she goes, well, let me pray for it. And she, she prays for his wrist. And he looks up at her and gets kind of nervous and just walks away. Well, later on, he comes up to my sister and says, hey, Breck, I, I wanted to tell you, I was too embarrassed to tell you at the time, but when you laid your hands on my wrist, I felt a warmth, and, and my, the pain in my wrist is gone. And my sister got to release the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit at school. You know, my, my sister is just another follower of Jesus who released what she had to the people around her. This is what I've learned, church. The Christian life is impossible without the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. It's necessary to thrive and to be fully alive. You know that the Spirit of God is what separates you from the rest of the world. Without the, the presence of God, without the Holy Spirit, we're just another religion. We're just like everybody else. But the presence of God, the Spirit of God living inside of you, is what separates us, children of God, from the rest of the earth. If you're in Exodus 33, this is what Moses said. And he makes, he makes this point very obvious in Scripture. Exodus 33, verses 15 and 16, says this. Then Moses said to God, by the way, let me give you some backstory. God is frustrated with the Israelites. Uh, they're complaining in the wilderness, and God says, That's it, I've had enough. I'm just gonna wipe out Israel. I'm done. They're complaining. I brought them out of Egypt, but they're not grateful. And Moses says, no, 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 no. Do not wipe out your children because everybody will just say that you led them out of Egypt to destroy them in the desert. And God listens to Moses' voice. He says, okay, I won't destroy my people. But then he says, but you go to the promised land without me. You take everybody and you lead them because I promised Abraham, I promised your forefathers that I would lead them to the promised land. And I'm, I'm a God of my word. I never break my promise. And so I'm going to let you go to the promised land. But I'm not coming with you. And this is what Moses says in verse 15. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. 
how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Moses understood this very clearly, that the presence of God that was with them in the desert was the only thing separating them from everybody else on the face of the earth. It's what gave them victory in battle. It's what gave them prosperity. It's what gave them peace. God's presence was the thing that separated them from the rest of the earth. Moses, he wouldn't move without the Holy Spirit. He said, if you're not in this, Lord, then don't send me. God calls us to, he calls the impossible in our lives possible. And how do you know it's the Lord moving in our life? How do you know it's the Holy Spirit moving in your life? Let me, let me answer that question by telling you, if, if you can't do it on your own, if God is asking you to do something and you can't do it on your own, the Lord might be moving in your life. Because the Lord wants to do something in your life that is impossible and impractical in your eyes, but nothing is impossible for the Lord. And so when he asks you to do something radical and he's asking you to step out in faith, like my sister on the field that day, lay your hands on this kid. You might get cut, cursed at. You might lose your reputation. Whatever it is, step out in faith. When the Lord is asking you to move, if you can't do it on your own, it's probably the Lord. The Spirit of God is the mark that separates believers from all other people. It's what distinguishes followers of Jesus. It's the very presence of God. The Holy Spirit is the very presence of God in our world. And God has made his Holy Spirit available to each one of us so that all of us can experience the fullness of God. Throughout the rest of this series, we're going to be, next week we're going to tackle, we're going to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit and what the baptism of the Holy Spirit signified and what that means in the life of a believer. But today I really want to focus on the presence of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be the dwelling place of God? What's the significance of being a temple of the Holy Spirit? 1 Corinthians 3.16. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there. This is one of the most profound statements, I think, that Paul ever wrote in the New Testament. It says this, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst. Now, if you think Paul is referring to the church in general, the church as a whole, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, three chapters later, Paul says that your body as an individual, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And he's telling the church in Corinthians that each one of you, as an individual, you are the dwelling place. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's one of the most profound statements that Paul ever made. But what does this mean to be the temple of the Holy Spirit? Where did this language come from? Let's talk about what it means to be a temple. And we're going to go all the way back to the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God's desire was to live among his created people from the very beginning. And last week I mentioned that Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is this picture of what a perfect relationship between God and humanity looks like. Adam and Eve were immersed in God's presence like fish in water. Eden was the dwelling place of God. And it says that God would walk through the garden in the cool of the day. It was, there was no sin in the garden. It was holy. It was a holy place. It was a perfect place. It was just like God designed. And Adam and Eve were in the midst of it. 
They were in the midst of God's presence, completely immer- immersed in God's presence. It was all around them. It was, filling, it was filling the air. It was filling the trees. It was filling the animals. It was filling their lungs. God's presence was all around them. But they disobeyed God, and they were separated from God's presence because the Holy Spirit cannot reside among unclean people. Everything about God, everything about the Holy Spirit is pure, is loving, is just, and good. So, if humans want to come, want want God to come and live among us with all of our impurity, with all of our lovelessness, with all of our injustice, all of our evil, we must prepare a place that is suitable for him. A place that is holy, a place that is suitable for God to dwell. So here's what happens. In Exodus, God gave Moses very careful instructions for how to build a tabernacle in the wilderness that was suitable for his presence. He says this in Exodus 25, 8 through 9. Then have them make a sanctuary for me. God is speaking to Moses. And I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. You see, if Israel could prepare a place that was suitable for God, that was not contaminated by influences or objects that he found offensive, then he wanted to accompany his people as they traveled towards the promised land. God says, if you can make a place that's suitable for me, that's, that's not contaminated by the things that, that, I find, that my spirit finds offensive, if you can create a place that's suitable for me, then I want to go with you. I want to be with you. I want to travel with you to the promised land. However, it would not be enough for Israel to merely build a physical space where God could dwell. He also required them to prepare themselves. Not just to prepare externally a place for him to dwell, but they had to prepare themselves. And in Exodus 19, when God met with the the nation at Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with them. And he gave Moses to give to the Israelites hundreds of commandments that were designed to elevate their behavior and their attitudes until they became holy like he was holy. It was the point of the law. God gave Moses over 630 commandments as a way of saying, here is how, if you want me to dwell with you, if you want me to go with if you want me to be your God, if you want to be holy like I am holy, then here's over 630 commandments that you have to follow in order to be a, 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 in order to prepare yourself so that I can be your God and dwell with you. But it didn't take long for Israel to discover that the law that God gave to Moses was not able to make them truly holy. It could teach them what was right, but it could not empower them to do what was right. The law could teach God's people what was right, but they didn't actually have the power to do what was right. It could not stop the wrong desires that arise in the human heart or empower a person to resist those desires when they came. It could command someone uh, to love their neighbor, but it could not supply the love for their, for their neighbor. It could command the people not to lust, but it could not give an exit from temptation. It didn't empower them to exit from temptation when those feelings and emotions rose up. It could, the law could command the people not to kill, 
but it could not stop feelings of anger that produced murderous thoughts in the people's minds. Do you see where I'm going, church? No matter how well a person obeyed the rules about external behavior, the law gave them no power to bring internal attitudes or emotions into obedience. The law that God gave his people was designed to make them holy. But God knew what he was doing. God didn't give them the law and go, oops, I thought this would work. I thought this would work, but apparently it doesn't. No, God gave the people the law to show them that they needed to rely on God's mercy. That they couldn't do it on their own. God said, here's the requirement. Here's the standard. If you want to be holy, if you want me to dwell in your midst, if you want to have an intimate relationship with me, this is what you got to do. And the people, time and time again, they, they would quickly find out, we can't do it. We can't do it. We keep, we keep messing up. We know what's right. You gave us the law. You told us what's right. I know I shouldn't, I know I shouldn't have lustful thoughts. I know I shouldn't kill. I, I know I shouldn't steal. But I feel like I'm powerless to actually do what is right. I'm powerless to keep these thoughts, these emotions, these attitudes at bay. I'm powerless to do that. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus preached a very long sermon, and he made a distinction between the outer aspects of a person's disobedience, which the law addressed. The law was addressing the outer aspects of a person's obedience, what they had to do on the outside. But Jesus also talked about in Matthew 5 about the inner posture of a person, which is what Jesus was introducing through the power of the Spirit. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, he says this. He says, you have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus warned his listeners that God expects them to obey his laws internally as well as externally. He did this because he wanted to show those who were trying to become righteous by keeping God's law that they could not succeed. Hey, all of you who are trying to follow the letter of the law to the T, how's that working for you? How's that that the, 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 the human will to just buckle down and try harder. I'm going to come to church more. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to serve the community more. And that's, that's what I'm going to do to be a better person. How does that work for you, Jesus says. Jesus was showing us that God expects us to obey the law, not just externally, but internally as well. He wasn't trying to shame his listeners. He was trying to awaken them to their desperate need for God's mercy. And he was driving us into the arms of grace. Jesus was driving his listeners into the arms of the Father who had a better plan. I wonder what was going through the minds of these listeners. They're sitting to the, on, this, on this hill listening to Jesus deliver the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is saying, I tell you, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that if you just look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in her heart. And he's taking all these laws to the next level. He's not just talking about the external act of committing adultery, but the internal desires of lusting, of anger. 
and he's trying to address those things. And imagine what those listeners are thinking. They're probably sitting there thinking, how is this possible? How am I supposed to change on the inside? How am I supposed to address these attitudes and these emotions, these behaviors that I have? I don't have any control over them. They control me. So they're probably thinking, Jesus, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do what you're talking about. And Paul in Romans 7 expresses this perfectly. Romans 7, verse 21. Paul says, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Then he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? It's probably what all the listeners sitting there on the Sermon on the Mount were thinking. What a wretched person I am. Who's going to rescue me? How can I do what Jesus is telling me to do? I don't know what to do. And then Paul gives us the answer in the next verse. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the bridge that made access to the Holy Spirit possible, giving us the power to do what pleases God and experience internal transformation. The Holy Spirit's power is what gives you the ability to do what pleases God. Gives you a new nature. Gives you a new person. Changes you from the inside. In the tabernacle, which later became the temple that was built by David's son, Solomon, there was this thick curtain. This thick curtain in the tabernacle, which separated a place called the Most Holy Place from where the priests ministered to the Lord. And inside the most holy place is where the presence of God dwelt in the Ark of the Covenant. This is the Old Testament. The presence of God was in the Ark of the Covenant that was situated in the most holy place. And there was a big, thick curtain that separated God's presence from where the priests would minister throughout the holy place. And once a year, the high priest would enter into the most holy place And by the way, he would have a rope tied around his waist just in case he didn't do everything perfect to the T. And if he would die, they would hear the little bells on his robe jingle and a thud. And they would pull him out from behind the curtain because the high priest died. So the high priest would walk in once a year to the most holy place where God's presence was with a rope tied around his waist just in case he got smote. And he would sprinkle... He would walk in there and he would sprinkle the blood of an animal sacrifice on the ark, on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, to atone for the sins of the nation. And here's what it says about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. It says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is now, according to Hebrews 6, he is now the high priest forever who went into the room of God's presence and he sprinkled his own innocent blood on the mercy seat. The death of Jesus on the cross becomes this sacrifice that atones and covers the sin of everyone who believes in him. 
Jesus was the bridge. He paid the price. Jesus, with his own innocent blood, prepared you to be a suitable place for the Holy Spirit to dwell. By taking away your sins, by removing the guilt, the judgment, the wrath of God, by taking that away from you and placing it on himself, he made your body, he made you a suitable place for God to rest. When you believe in Jesus and you ask for his forgiveness, you become a temple that previously was desecrated because of sin and now is consecrated because of the blood of Jesus. That used to be unholy and now is holy. That used to be, you used to be a slave to sin and now sin has been abolished and replaced by righteousness and now the very real presence of God can dwell within you. So when you decide to follow Jesus and you give your heart to him, he prepares your body to receive his presence, which has been the plan since the beginning to have a personal relationship with every single one of us. I said, early, I said last week that the role of the Holy Spirit, the primary role of the Holy Spirit is not to give you power, it's to make you holy. The Holy Spirit was given to you to make you holy, to be like Jesus. Does that mean you're going to be perfect? You're never going to struggle with sin ever again? No. But now you have the ability to do what pleases God. You have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you that is comforting you, counseling you, convicting you, that's leading you. And what happens when you're filled with the Holy Spirit? The Bible says that the glory of God fills your temple that it fills your body. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 5. This is a picture of what happened when the temple was, was consecrated to God. And when the trumpeters and singers, sorry, 2 Chronicles 5, 13 through 14, says, and when the trumpeters and singers were joined in unison, making one sound to be heard and praising and thanking the Lord, and when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and the other instruments for song and, and praise, they praised the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his mercy and loving kindness endure forever. Then the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. So that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. When you are filled with God's presence, you are filled with his glory. That word is the word kavod. That word, it means a weight, a weightiness or presence of God. Sometimes it's the physical manifestation of God. But the glory of God fills you. Oftentimes, when, when the Israelites, actually every time, this happened every time, Israel, the Israel would travel, they would pack up the tabernacle, and they would bring the tabernacle with them. And whenever they camped, they would set the tabernacle back up. And when they set it back up, they would, consec or they, they would, they would do the ceremony to, to consecrate the temple once again. And then God's presence would come down from heaven. Literally, heavens would open up and this pillar of fire would come shooting down from heaven and would fall upon the Ark of the Covenant and, and, and would light the altar of sacrifice. The glory of God would literally come down from heaven in fire. And that was his presence coming to earth. And what happens? What do we see in Acts chapter 2? When the Holy Spirit comes and baptizes his people, what do we see? Fire falls from heaven, 
and tongues of fire, little flames, hover over every single individual in the room. God was saying, you have been prepared. You are a suitable place. Now you host the presence of God, every one of you. We're filled with the glory of God. How does this happen? It happens through an invitation. It is the gift of faith. And the Bible says that when you receive Jesus into your heart, and when you believe that he paid the price for your sin, that he died on the cross for you, when you believe this in your heart, you confess it with your mouth, the Bible says that Jesus prepares you to be a suitable place for the glory of God to come, for the presence of God to come and reside inside of you. It is the gift of God. And when you read through the Gospels, you can hear, I encourage you to read through the Gospels again, and every time that Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, listen to it. You can hear, almost hear the excitement in his voice when he talks about the promise of the Father, that I am sending somebody, there is someone coming that is going to go with you, he's going to fill you with power, and Jesus is excited about it. And it's, it's the gift of God, it's the promise of the Father that's for every single one of us. So what happens when you're filled with God's presence? I have three things for the rest of our time. When you're filled with God's presence, we've been talking about this all morning. Number one, you are empowered to be like Jesus. When you're filled with God's presence, you are empowered to be like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18, the New Living Translation says this. So all of us who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. The message version says this. It says, there is nothing between us and God. Our faces shine with the brightness of his face. And so we are transfigured much like the Messiah. Our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. Paul is saying to the Corinthians that the Spirit makes you more and more like Jesus. He makes you more and more like himself. Because you have Jesus, you are now a suitable place for God to dwell. You have a new nature. You have a nature that desires to please God and now has the ability to fulfill that desire. In Jeremiah 31, 33, he, he prophesied about this in the Old Testament. Before the Holy Spirit was ever released in the book of Acts, Jeremiah prophesied about this, where God says through the prophet Jeremiah, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Ezekiel prophesied about this as well. God said through the prophet Ezekiel in, in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart, of, I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. See, God, this was his plan from the very beginning, to be with his people. Not only among his people, but inside of his people. To be so close that you and God, when people see the church, when people see God's children, they're supposed to see God. It's, in, it's supposed to be indistinguishable. When I see 
the children of God, when I see the church doing the works of God, when I see them showing the love of God to people, I'm seeing, I'm seeing God's love. I'm seeing God himself. Not to say that we're all little gods, no. But when people look at your life, they're supposed to see Jesus because you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You're empowered to be like Jesus. The second thing, when you're filled with God's presence, you have access to God anytime. You have access to God anytime. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 12, it says, The Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit, and no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. No one knows your thoughts except you, right? There's, there's no mind readers in the room. There's no mind readers, but we can perceive your thoughts. We can perceive your thoughts and what you're thinking, but we will only truly know them if you share them with us, right? Like, I can probably guess what you're thinking, but until you share your thoughts with me, I don't actually know what you're thinking. And the same is true with God. We can't even begin to understand who God is with our own intellect, with our own understanding. However, when you have his spirit in you, everything changes. People try to understand God without knowing him, and this doesn't work. But you have been given the spirit of God, and the spirit of God shares with us God's heart, God's desires. The, the, the Romans 12 says that we were to be renewed. We were to be transformed by the renewing of, of, of our minds so that we would know what God's will is, his good and perfect will. That God shares through his spirit his thoughts, his desires with the people that are full of his spirit. Your relationship with God does not depend on a church gathering or a Bible study. You are the temple and have the spirit of God within you. And I'd encourage you tonight, this afternoon as you go home, to get alone with God. Find some time to be alone with God and allow him to share his heart with you. Allow him to share his desires, his, his mind with you. Jesus did this very often. Why did Jesus do this often? He did it to isolate the outside voices so that he could hear the whisper of God more clearly. Jesus would go away and be alone to, to drown out the noise, to get rid of all the distractions so that he can connect with God. He can hear God's voice clearly. And when you're full of God's spirit, all of us have the ability. We all have access to God at any time. And God wants to meet with you. I shared with you a little bit of my testimony last week about how I, I met with the presence of God. And, and God spoke and said that this is a key that he's given us. That, that access to his presence, access to that room where his presence is, metaphorically, is, is a room that you can walk into any time. You have the key. You don't have to knock. You don't have to lock the door. Just come in. Just go. Be with God. You have access to God at any time because you're full of his spirit. And the third thing is this. When you're filled with the presence of God, you are never alone. You're never alone. God is with you wherever you go. When people see you, God comes with you. When you introduce people, when you introduce yourself to people, when you when you invite someone to church, when you share the gospel with somebody, God is with you in that moment and he's working through you. He's doing a miracle through your life. He's with you wherever you go. 
Joshua 1.9 is an Old Testament uh, foreshadowing of this. This is very true in the Old Testament, but it's even truer now. Joshua 1.9 says, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's even more true on this side of the cross, now that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. God is with you in the dark places of your life. He's with you in the shadow of the valley of death. He's with you even in your mistakes, even in your failures. He's with you even in your sins. God is with you. He's with you in the difficult places of your life. When you have frustrations with a coworker or a teacher or a parent or a child or another loved one, God is with you in those frustrations. He's with you in the disorienting places of your life, in the midst of your doubts, in the midst of your faith and belief, God is with you. How many of you know that doubting is a normal part of Christian, uh, our Christian faith? It's a normal part of our walk. God doesn't encourage us to doubt. Doubt is apart from God's will, apart from God's design, but we all experience doubt. And what do we do in the midst of that doubt? We do it with Jesus. We do it with the Holy Spirit. We can walk through doubt with God. He's with you in the midst of the doubt. He's with you when you're confused about what to do with the rest of your life or where you're at now. He's with you in all the confusion. I'm going to ask Mary to come up and play a little bit. I didn't forewarn you, but surprise. Thank you. You're never alone. When you're filled with God's presence, you are empowered to be like Jesus. You have access to God anytime. You're never alone. You know, my dad, he shared this story with me. My dad said that before he was saved, he would go and he would visit his stepmother and uh, his, his dad and his stepmother, and he would walk into the house, and she'd often have Christian music playing on the radio. My dad said before he was saved, he'd walk into the house, and he would have a physical reaction to the music on the radio, pulsed by it. I hated to listen to the music that my stepmother was playing on the radio. He was super into ACDC and Boston and Journey, you know, all the goodies. And the Lord convicted him when he got saved. This is my dad's story. The Lord convicted him when he got saved, and he, he began to, to, to listen less to that music and listen more to, to Christian music. And he said that after he got saved, he walked into his stepmother's house, and he actually enjoyed the, the music on the radio. It was pleasant. It was life-giving. It made him happy. He enjoyed listening to that music. Something had happened to my father when he got saved. He was a new person. He was given a new nature. There was something very different about his attitude. There was something very different about his behaviors, something different about the way that he thought. And this is what happens when we, when we say yes to Jesus, is you become a new person. The Bible says that the old is gone and dead, and the new has come. That you have a new spirit. And this church is what we're going to see in the physical next Sunday through the act of water baptisms. It's what it represents, that when a person goes under the water, they are, they are buried with Christ in his death. The old person, the old self is dying away, and when they come out of the water, they are resurrected with Christ into new life, with a new spirit. They are a new person, a new creation.
That's what water baptism is an outward expression of an inward work. And something happens in that moment. I'm excited that we get to share with those who are being water baptized next week. Perhaps maybe you've been enslaved to the same addictive behavior for years and years. And maybe you're here this morning and you carry a wound that another person gave you. And perhaps you lose sleep at night sometimes just thinking about the words that they spoke over you. And, and you, you have trouble with forgiveness and you have trouble with, with addictions and you don't know why you can't seem to do what you know you should do. And it's this battle. It's a battle that every single one of us face. But I would encourage you to allow Jesus to prepare you this morning to receive his spirit. If everybody would stand up with me, I'm going to, I want to ask you something. I'm going to extend an invitation for those of you who have never said yes to Jesus. Perhaps you think, I'm a good person. I think I deserve, I, I deserve good things because I'm a good person. I think that when I die, you know, St. Peter's going to be at the pearly gates. He's going to weigh the good things in my life with the bad things in my life. And I feel like I've done more good things. I think I have a shot. Can I tell you that the Bible says that that is not how we are saved. You can't earn salvation through your works. You can't earn salvation through your good deeds. But Jesus says in order for you to truly please God, in order for you to truly have an intimate relationship with God, you first have to be given a new spirit. The spirit of God has to come and fill your temple, has to fill you, has to dwell inside of you. And maybe you're here today and you've never said yes to the person of Jesus. And today you're saying, I, I want to say yes. I want an intimate relationship with God. I want him to fill me. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I'm going to pray over you, and I'm going to ask you to respond if that's you. Father, I pray right now that you would awaken the hearts of the people here who need to respond to you, that you would lift the cloud, that you would, you would even now begin to make their hearts start beating faster, make, their, make, them, make them realize that they, they need you right now. If that's you in this place, you're saying, I need Jesus. I need him to fill me. Can you just raise your hand high for me to see? Praise God. Anybody else in the room? Anybody else? Just raise your hand high. Thank you, Jesus. I see your hands. You could put your hands down. I want you to pray this prayer with me, everybody in the room. And for those of you who raised your hands, just open up your heart. Receive this in your heart. Say, Jesus. I love you, and I realize now that I need you. I've tried to do it on my own, and it just doesn't work. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I confess that you are the Lord of my life. Now give me your spirit so that I can become a new person. And I can do things that please you. Help me walk in your ways. In your name I pray.
Amen. Amen. Can we give praise to God for the, the people who raise their hands in the room? Praise God. Praise God. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you if you raise your hand this morning uh, that you would come to grow class this afternoon. Maybe you can't make it this afternoon. Please try to make time. We, we do it on the second Sunday of every month, but, but I'd love to talk more with you. I'd love to have a conversation about your story. And uh, our church, we're serious about coming alongside those who give their lives to Jesus. We are never meant to, uh, to say yes to Jesus, to respond on a Sunday morning, and then to go out and fend for ourselves. But you are saved into a family. You're saved into a community. And so stay connected. And uh, coming to Grow Class is a great way to, to get connected, to have that initial connection point. Once again, I want to plug this. If you have not been water baptized, you've said yes to Jesus. You, you, you follow Jesus, but you haven't followed him into the, the waters of baptism. I encourage you to consider being water baptized. And if you want to respond to that, you can fill out a connect card. Uh, on your way out, there's some at the info table in the lobby, but there's some on the offering bo boxes. You can put your name, your email, your phone number on the back. Just check the box that says, I want to learn more about water baptism. I'd love to talk to you more about that. That's next Sunday, so I can get you all the details all set up before we do that. Can we give God praise one more time this morning for what he's done? Praise you, Lord. Church, be blessed. We love you, and we'll see you next week for Baptism Sunday as we continue our series in the Holy Spirit.